Just pray as we go into our time together. Heavenly Father, it is a sweet thing to be with people. Um, It is an amazing thing that you not only save us out of darkness into marvelous light, but you save us into fellowship. You save us into your family, um, into a bunch of the people that you love tremendously and that you give unique gifts to, um, and that you have given um, to them to give to us. Um, I so often feel the effect of that, Father, showing up here and in our MCs and the relationships of the church where I don't have all the things I need on my own. Uh, You provide for me through my brothers and sisters. And so we are thankful to be in your family, and we are thankful to see the way you provide for each other through each other in our various giftingness of teaching and of encouragement and of helping and of supporting and loving and finances and all the above, Father, just a sweet thing. Father, we come to you this morning uh, in Romans 13. I pray that you please help us by your spirit as we listen. Let us have hearts that are soft. Give us minds that are sharp, that we would uh, advance in our ability to read and understand your word and interpret it correctly. Give us hearts that are soft, Lord, to really listen to um, the work of your Spirit as you bring out your Word to show us, Lord, where maybe our hearts are not in line with yours or where uh, your mind is different than our minds and then you change our minds and therefore have to change our hearts. So we ask that you would help us with that. We know we thrive in you. We know we experience eternal life and fullness thereof when we um, more fully understand and believe the truth, your ways. And we thank you that you're in the business of that. And we thank you that you've given us your spirit. So I ask for your spirit's help as I teach. I ask for your spirit's help for all of us as we listen to your word. For the glory of Jesus, in Christ's name, amen. So we are in Romans chapter 13. And um, since some of us here have not been in our journey through Romans, I'm going to recap all of Romans in 10 minutes. Just kidding, I'm not going to. Um, we've been in Romans for about a year now. And um, Romans verses one, chapters 1 to 11 are largely the guts, the engine, the theology behind things. Just amazing, amazing book. If you haven't been able to follow along with us um, through this journey, I would encourage you to go back and get those sermons uh, because Romans is so impactful as far as giving us the why and the what's behind everything. It's been amazing. So we get towards 9 and 11, which are probably some of the heaviest hitting portions of the New Testament and the scriptures altogether. And in that, there is this theme that comes out that God has given us abundant, abundant mercy. And because of that, when it rolls over to chapter 12, um, and by the way, just so you, you all know, like the chapters and verses, those aren't actually written by, Paul, by the Spirit through Paul. Those were much later on in time. Um, some people put the d- chapters and divisions of verses in there just for your own Bible study purposes. Like those are just helpful, some, but they're not exactly pure breakups. Of, of the text of the ways that we think they should be sometimes. But in chapter 12, but they're, we're really thankful for it because it'd be really hard for us to reference anything in the Bible without going, well, go three quarters of the way into Romans and find an ox and make it right. So um, we're thankful for that. We're getting to Romans 12. We actually shift from all the whys and all the theology and the engine behind things to because of this great mercy. Therefore, what does it mean? And it means that we then become people that have trusted in Christ. We become living sacrifices, presenting ourselves to Christ, daily dying to ourselves, taking up our cross, and following Christ. And while so often, once we listen to the gospel message, our reactions to things should make a lot of sense, God goes out of the way to detail a lot of those things so we don't have to like get, that by, get them by inference. 
he lays them out about how we would actually do this. And Romans 12 has tons of information on that, really powerful statements about what it means to live under the mercy of God. First half of Romans 12 is particularly how we live under the mercies of God with God's people. Second half is with people who hate us. Then you turn to Romans chapter 13, and now it talks about us as being citizens in a land where we're, or our ultimate citizenship is not. We are sojourners. We, we live in a land. We're not just like vagrants passing through. It's more than that. We're here to stay, but this world is not our own world. So we, we live as sojourners in a land. And you can, as I have, and as Dempsey explained last week how he did too at times, you can live off the inferences of that and so say, so therefore, since this is my home, I'm detached from this land. I'm detached from government. I don't do any part of it. Um, I grew up in a, I grew up in a, in a church culture where um, too much was made of politics, and, and specifically in a, in a conspiracy theory. There's a, a conspiracy theory that kind of ruled, ruled our church area. And you're always getting some pamphlet about don't vote for this person because they're part of this organization or something like that. So I'm reading the Bible myself, and all of a sudden I'm reading like, oh, we're not of this world. Like we're, this, our citizenship is in heaven. So I automatically inferred, well, then I'm out of this stuff. This is nonsense, and it really was nonsense. But um, um, I'm out. I shouldn't do voting or none of that kind of stuff. And so I, I went on inference instead of like keeping and reading, keep my nose in the text and reading. And so uh, I had read Romans 13. I would read parts of it, but probably the full implications of it didn't really wash over my life. So I pulled back from interacting with government. Of course, I obeyed it. I knew I should do that. That's pretty clear. I read that part. But my connectivity to it was pretty, pretty vague. So Romans 13 is very, very helpful. Um, Andrew did an amazing job last week in starting to break out that passage for us. I get to take the second half of that today. Um, and he talked about the origin of where government is from, that government is actually a grace of God to the people of the earth to slow down and impede the flow of sin over this planet. Since sin has affected all the planet, if God didn't give grace to slow it down and to restrain that, it would just wash away. We can see places of this world where that happens, where there aren't governments in place. And you have things like warlords or power tribes and those kind of things. And those places are just extreme, extreme places of darkness. So where God's common grace is. So we use a word called common grace. In case it's a new concept to you, common grace are the good things and the favor and the goodness God gives to everybody, not just his covenant people, okay? There's grace, and usually when we're talking about grace, we're talking about specific grace, grace that comes to Gavin because Gavin knows Jesus, and Gavin is an adopted son of Jesus, and so he is full recipient of God's grace, and God loves him and pours out grace on him. But there is a grace and a goodness that God gives all the world, like rain, sunshine, fertile soil, marriage, kids, and an, an amazing one is the gift of government. Because where it doesn't exist, I mean, you, th you can make the Wild West movies look cool with martial law. It's not cool. It's not, it's not a place you want to be to live in your little block of land and have no idea that anyone would protect you or anyone has governments except for whoever has the biggest gun. So we're thankful for that. And we learned that last week. We learned that that is God's servant to us. We need this section. We need the section for us as believers because... The gospel is how people come to know Jesus, but the gospel is the worldview of all followers of Jesus. Because Jesus, he doesn't say, hey, I'll just come get you when you're dead and whisk you away to heaven. He goes, no, I'm the king of all things. I'm the maker of this world. All things were made by him and through him. 
All things go to him. So Jesus is the maker of all things. He is the worldview. When we listen to Christ, Christ doesn't say, I have a localized small government and it's located in a cloud somewhere. He goes, no, I'm the king of all things. So we need to be very careful to listen to Christ as he describes himself as the maker and redeemer and designer and king over all things. So when he speaks to the suke, the soul, the psyche, we listen to what the maker, redeemer, and lord of the suke, soul, psyche says. And when he says things about the government, we listen to what he says. When he says things about the body, we listen to what he says. And when he says things about nature, we listen to what he says. He doesn't say everything that can be said about any of those subjects. But where he does speak, we want to be very, very careful to listen to what God has said about those things before we then go to secondary authorities to try to figure out our way. It becomes a world view. The gospel itself is not just simply an entry portal, and it's not a ceremonial concept. It is the genuine worldview. When Christ invites you to know him, he's inviting you to adopt him as the worldview. He says, I am the truth. The truth. So there's an astounding claim in Christ that he is the worldview, and we then need to learn the worldview from him because we weren't born that way. And no matter what news channel you watched, they were not giving you Jesus' worldview. So we're coming back to the text to get it. Come back to the text to get that worldview time and time again. And the worldview is good. And a worldview, in case you're not quite getting that, the definition would be it's a philosophy or concept of, of the world. Or maybe the way I'd say it's the way we see everything. It's the overarching theme that all things are defined and ordered by. And within us, I don't think many of us realize we have dueling worldview views. You were saved out of a different worldview, a worldview of darkness. It had mingles. It had little spottings of wonderful like sprinkles of God's worldview in it. But you didn't because you didn't possess the truth and you were in darkness and had darkness. You didn't, weren't born with the right worldview. And so even myself at the ripe age of 50, um, teaching the Bible for years, whatever, I still have this dueling. God is always bringing the text into my life and God's worldview, the way he says it really is, often intersects in new ways I didn't see before an existing worldview in my heart. And I want to yield my knee to him in that. Go, okay, am I understanding this clearly and correctly? Then I want to go with what you're saying. I trust you. I trust your words. You are truth. So there is a dueling of worldviews. And don't be surprised if all of a sudden in this text, probably in this text, for most of us, you should find a clash of worldviews when it comes to government and what it is and where it came from and your responsibilities towards it. So feel, feel the burn um, and deal with it in prayer as people who worship the Lord and trust him because he's not only right, but he's good. He's not giving us a lie. He's not pitching uh, a skin over the thing. It's actually the truth of Christ. So this is the worldview of Christ. Romans 3 Verse 6. Today we're doing verses 3, uh, verses 6 to 10. I want to walk us through here, and as we follow the argument that he has made, um, I think, I was talking to Dempsey, um, sometimes when, you, when we go to preach passages, it's just pretty clear. It says things right, right in front of us that are just, there's no, there's no question about what it means. But sometimes there's arguments and passages that, like, when you slow down, you go, why does it do that? I'll give you an example. So, so back up to the top here. Um, let's, let's just start in verse 3. We're going to go, for, go forward. Okay. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad. Uh, would you have no fear for the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. 
for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God and an avenger who carries out the wrath on God on the wrongdoers. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this also you pay taxes for the authorities or ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are due, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love one another. I'm going to stop right there. Like when you're making sense of a text, I feel like the beginning of verse 8 should kind of not make sense to you. You go from like owing, owing honor and taxes and these kind of things and like then owe no one anything and everyone that follows Dave Rams is like rock on, don't owe anything, no, no debt. But that's not the context here. It's not about no debt here, okay? So then it moves like owe no man anything except to love one another. Um, I, I would just encourage you when you're reading, read, read, when you're reading at home, read as if you're reading this passage to our church. And notice when things don't naturally make sense. And that's when you slow down, you come back around, you start praying about it. Like, Lord, what's the connection to this? How do I get this? And to really understand the connectivity of these things. So to this pa- today's passage was helpful for me to actually study and work through because it wasn't so obvious from the beginning where it was going. Uh, verse 6. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For because of this, you also pay taxes. And all the people said, Boo. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Now, I know that all the people say boo, um, but the point is here that taxes are good. In verse 6, because of this, you pay taxes. So let's just start off with this. Because of this. What is because of this in reference to? If you go up to 5, we start to see what because of this is. It says, therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So there's dual motives put out for the Christian of why we would, in our text down here, pay taxes. And the first one there, and the first one to do good. Now here to pay taxes. Dual motives. The first motive is consequence. The second motive is conscience. Do you see in the text there? One therefore must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath. That's consequence. You don't want God's wrath. If you're new to the game, don't want it. Okay? Avoid that. That's your consequence. And number two, but also for the sake of conscience. So first, consequence. What are those consequences? In three and four, it tells us what the consequences are. It references God's wrath, which in 12, we were told not to avenge ourselves, but to give God his space for wrath, because he's got wrath to pour it out. And we turn the chapter, and all of a sudden we realize, oh, some of that is here on earth. And it's done by the government. The government, who doesn't believe in God, actually is God's holder of wrath to pull it off. Verse 3 and 4, here's some of that. For the rulers are not a terror to good conduct. This is their design, God-given design, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is, follow this, okay, and enter the world of your worldview may just be encountered by Jesus' worldview, and there may be a difference between the two. For he, that's the governing authorities, is God's servant for your good. So it's from God. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear, not the handcuffs, but the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So very strong terms there about capital punishment. Triple laid out. So 
governor, the governor and the governing authorities are God's servants, and they are the ones who carry out God's wrath on the wrongdoer by design as God's will. So our first piece is consequence. Um, when the conscience doesn't work, there are consequences there. We live in a world of darkness that has no strong conscience, no strong walk with Jesus. We cannot count on their love for God to keep them from pillaging, plundering, rioting, stealing. So God graciously, through common grace, puts consequence for them and for us so that when a person does do these things, God's wrath is shown on them and the rest of society is held in check and protected from that thing going wild. And where we see this not in play, particularly in places of Africa, Central America, South America, places of North America in large cities, those kind of things, we see the chaos that comes out of it when that is not there. So first is consequence. That's the first motive. But the second thing and the things unique to us as Christians is conscience. We are moved first by worship, secondarily by the accountability of consequence. So when it comes to taxes, why would you pay your taxes? The argument is because of conscience, because the tax gatherer, the authority, is God's servant, and God has appointed him there, and the taxes are the rightful support for that person doing that work. And since we see the authority as part of God's grace, we support it, and we don't go taxes, horrible. We say taxes, rightful pain. It's, good, it's a rightful investment of our time and efforts, and particularly our cash in that way. So when there is no worship for God, there is the accountability of consequence, but we are people moved by conscience, not consequence. So there's also a secondary application. This is probably how accountability works for us as Christians. Um, many of us have accountability partners for various things, often um, maybe accountability for how we're going to use our time, maybe accountability for lust and those kind of things. So if Aaron is my accountability buddy, if I'm not very careful, I'm not walking with Jesus, what will happen is that I won't be walking with Jesus. And if I don't have accountability, I may just fall right in the sin. So you fall in the sin enough to go like, man, I need to confess my sin to one another. I need accountability to share my heart with him. So I get Aaron as my accountability. And there are times where my heart is head n just nosediving right into sin, but all of a sudden I just see Aaron's face. And I, and I, and I, see, I, I see what's going to happen when I, I dread talking to him. And so the fear of God won't move me to something, but the fear of Aaron will. And that stops me progressing in my action. So it's fear of consequence. But my conscious level, I fail that. My abiding at Jesus level, I fail that. So when, that's the ha when that happens, when earthly accountability for fellowship stops us, when worship wouldn't, there's a twofold move. Number one, we thank God for not letting us wreck our life on the rocks by using a brother or sister in our life. And then number two, we repent. We say, all right, Lord, I see what happened. Uh, you gave me the grace of a brother and a sister, and that person kept me from like just taking a nosedive and crushing my family and life and hurting people. But my love for you wouldn't motivate me, but my fear for that man would. And so I confess it to the Lord and say, Lord, please stoke my heart again in love for you. Let me not pursue these ways because I do find you wonderful. I do want to follow you. I do want to obey you. So we are people who still use consequence, and even in accountability senses. But we're always pushing to conscience. And what is real fruit? Real fruit isn't the absence of sin based upon earthly consequence. That's not real fruit, according to John 15. Real fruit comes when we abide in Jesus and he abides in us. And out of that comes shall we say, conscience-driven action from the heart in honor and love for the Lord. So we're always pushing into conscience. 
And with that conscience, we pay our taxes because, in the verse 6 there, the word here, because, why do we do it? Because those people, those authorities, are God's servants. Just a moment of geekhood here. Early in the chapter, they're called God's ministers. Like the same word we get deacons out of. In this verse here, in verse 6, it's a different word. It's a word that means people servants. So God has designed, in verse 6, these authorities here as a design agency meant to serve the people. We call in English, or common, public servants. Public servants designed and appointed by God to serve the people, not to be lording it over the people. And because God has put them there to, to enable serving of the people, it is rightly for them to be funded. And that's why we would put our hearts and conscience behind paying our taxes. Why? Because the government is God's kindness to the world. We are because people, motivated by the king, the person of our king, even in the paying of our taxes, we welcome and monetarily support government as being God's grace given to curb evil, bring justice, and to bring flourishing to the people of the land. That's our first piece. Our second piece is this. We are called then to provide all the parts of us, all our parts. Romans 13, verse 7. Check it out. Pay, all to, what is, pay, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, um, literally there, fear to whom fear is owed, is the, the actual words there, honor to whom honor is owed. In other words, don't withhold anything rightfully belonging to another. Acknowledging their rightful claim, position, rights um, that we are to give to them as designed by the Lord. Taxes, pretty clear because I just said it in verse 6, right? Taxes, we should pay the taxes. Revenue, probably here likely being something like sales tax or tariffs. Respect, literally fear of them, um, which is not so clear these days. Because when I say we have a conflict of worldviews, like you may, have, you may have already felt a conflict of worldviews where you thought government is bad and it's man's creation. All of a sudden God goes, oh, no, no, actually government's my creation. You might find that rub. Then you might find in, in verse 4, like, oh, um, punishment, prison, uh, capital punishment, those things are not good, but you might find in verse 4 that God says something quite differently than that. Let the rub happen, right? Prayerfully soak it and think about it. You might then also find here that taxes, because you have been to raise that like taxes are the stealing of your money, and God goes, no, it's not the stealing of your money. Even Jesus pays his taxes. It's not stealing your money. And then another rub is here, you might find honor and respect, which definitely we feel the rub here. Because as our politics go along, on both sides, everything is more wild all the time, and everything we watch is just so vitriolic. Like, no one gets any time to talk unless they're yelling, making accusations, blowing people over, being rude, lying, right? It's just so non-fearful, so non-honoring. And if you're not careful, you start picking up the cues that that's the way you're supposed to do it too. You're supposed to shut up and be out of it, not touch it, or else be just punching everyone in the face that you can find around you. So those things for us as believers, honor and respect, are not common traits to our common worldview. They're not the things that win in the media. They're not the things that win in the news right now. But this is the heart of Jesus. And we saw Jesus, we see, we see Jesus and his people doing it, right? We see Jesus on trial in this amazing time. The, the Lord of heaven and earth sitting with peon Pilate. Pilate's grilling him and Jesus is being gracious. Jesus is being truthful. He goes, you know, you don't have any authority unless it's given to you. But just very gracious, you know. And, um, but he's not just degrading Pilate. Right? He's, he's being respectful at that time. We see Paul doing it. We see Paul doing it in the religious 
uh, ceremony where he's actually arguing with somebody and he, <laughs> it's funny, Paul just lights this guy up and calls him, you whitewashed tomb, whatever, and they're like, oh, you just said to the high priest, he goes, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know, that's your role? I'm sorry, I wouldn't have said that if I'd known that was your role, because he respects role. He says it to governors, because he talks to, to the governors that he's being tried by and speaks to them in respectful ways. We see in the Old Testament with the way Daniel handled, Neb- handled Nebuchadnezzar, his captive, captivating king. So we saw Christ and his people doing this, dealing in truth, being very gracious and very honoring to the ones around you, regardless of the fact that those people are followers of God or not, are openly on your side or not, or openly wicked or not, still with respect and honor. And that's what God would call us to do. How does he want us to handle ourselves? Jesus calls us as the true king. Give honor, give respect. I might say there's probably one maybe more unforeseen thing in this in this passage. I'd argue with you guys because of what our nation is, that we happen to be living in a democratic nation. When it says that we should not withhold anything from the government, that we shouldn't withhold the taxes and revenue with honor and respect, one of the unique pieces of being in a democracy is they're inviting you for counsel for what is good and who should lead it. They're inviting you. They're calling you into it. If you, let's play the game really large. If you had a person and that person had a dedicated phone to the president's office and when that President Smith took office, they sent this dedicated phone to this person's office and say, I want you to be my counsel. Anytime I want you to call up and I want you to breathe words of truth and counsel and wisdom into me, steward my position of counsel well. We would then think that that person has an obligation. You better take that dead serious. Don't, don't, don't do it for our team, but be dead serious about breathing in truth and justice and rightness because they're asking you as counsel. In another way, and though the numbers are way smaller, that's the case it is with us in America and being a democracy or anywhere in the world that things are democratic. You're being invited, you have a stewardship in, to speak to that which is true and who should lead it. And so we as people, really part of owing no man anything and not withholding what is owed of us to the government, is we probably have a strong stewardship to take take that very carefully, take that very prayerfully, on our voice in the time. Now, it's a weird part. Uh, Aaron and I were talking about this week. It's a weird thing in democracy. Because you're invited to the table. It's called voting. You're invited to the table when it comes to policy and laws to speak into those things. So we come to the table, we do our part, and then we go back under submission. Right? We don't sit there and like, well, I don't submit because in America we are all the rulers of the land. That doesn't work. Right? He's telling us to submit to the rulers of the land. In our government that we graciously have this amazing thing where we weren't born with a North Korean dictator over us, and instead a different system that calls us out and says, speak in truth, speak in justice, speak in and adopt these people, and then we step away from the table and we submit with all of our hearts and we pay taxes with all of our hearts. We don't say, I'll partially submit because I don't agree with you, and I'll partially pay taxes because I don't agree with you. God calls us to fully submit and to the point of sin, pay our taxes, give our honor, give our respect. But I would say carefully that we should be careful to steward the way our government has actually called us with stewardship to speak that which is true and that was right in the appointing of people and to do with honor and grace. I'd say it's very important, maybe now more than ever in our nation, because um, the fall. Every nation in this world is full of, fall, full of fallen people and fallenness progresses. Unless God stops it with a common grace institution of some, some element, 
that could be a natural disaster, that could be a civil war, that could be a new government or different things that happen. God puts those things there to curb the progression of darkness. So we as believers need to not lose our minds and freak out because darkness progresses. We know darkness will progress, but we know that the kingdom of heaven is progressing, progressing forward. So we are part of a kingdom that is progressing forward by the power of God in a world that progresses in different ways in darkness. And we shouldn't be really shocked. In our context, um, our darkness of our society has, in the last 10 years, progressed so wildly, um, so past the line of absurdity, that we should take very, very carefully our responsibility to own our position, our stewardship in owing our voice to the governing authority. What will you say is true? What will you say is good? Who will you say should be in the spot that should lead that? We should really steward that very, very well. Because while it's been wild for five years, who knows what's going to happen in the next five years? I'll give you some options. And you might think they're ridiculous, and they are ridiculous, but are they any more ridiculous than what's in our state house right now? I mean, in the next set of years, um, it wouldn't be really any more different for things to happen to us, like the seizure of property, imprisonment or worse of non-compliant people to medical trends, social trends, sexual trends, religious trends, uh, the removal of children, cannibalism, the right to rape or watch, um, which I know it sounds kind of weird, but, but really just this week they didn't put a guy in prison in Xenia for walking into a YMCA with a bunch of young girls changing as an older man and to watch. So I'm saying these things are really upon us and we have this spot to speak and say this is true or not true, this is good or not good. And you're going to say something is good or not good by what you do, by voting or not by voting and how you handle it. So like really take this upon our hearts because our dark world that needs Jesus so bad is spiraling into absurdity all the way around us. So don't lose your mind, but be aware of what it is. And let's be God's grace to the world around us in the sense of government and not lose our minds. So don't be shocked by it. Don't be paralyzed by it. Remember truth and goodness are objective. So out of love for Christ, who is the truth in life, be true to what is true and right. Embrace your select role in advancing right. And then stay on the task of the main call, which we then burn, find in verse 8. Okay? So after we do our part, what's next? We get focused on the main thing. Government is our main thing. It's a thing. It's part of how we worship. It's part of our stewardship. But it's not the main thing. We're sojourners in that land. We are called to live quiet and peaceful lives, particularly in our citizenship, so that we can engage with the message in the reign of Jesus with crystal clarity. In 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 to 4, it says it this way. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. All right, so live, live quietly, live respectfully, live peaceably. We're praying for the people around us. And in our context, we're invited to engage with that government in a number of ways. And then comes why. This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. The reason we, we engage with the government and then we let go of government is we can get back to our main thing, which is to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world around us. So we don't, we shouldn't, as Christians, fall into the two errors of ignoring government around us, nor over-fixating on government around us, right? We come in, speak into it, prayerfully engage in it, and then we come back out to our main call. Both calls are worship, both calls are glorifying God, but our main call 
is gospel advancement, not government advancement. So why live a quiet, peaceable life? Number one, conscience. Number two, uh, number one was consequence. Number two, conscience. And here, number three, is the commission of Jesus. We're called to operate under the authority of government and rightfully provide all of our parts to it that we are called to by God. Third piece and our final piece today is our occupation is love. This is where the text got kind of funny. Um, And I think it's a, I I don't know. The more I looked at it, the more I loved it. I hope you guys do too. Verse eight. Okay, verse seven, we owed a bunch of stuff. We owed to the government and actually to God, we owed to God, to the government, our taxes and to the government, through God, we owed our respect and our honor and all things that we owe to the government as part of our worship. But then in verse eight, it says, owe no one anything. That's kind of funny words, but you go from O to no O. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So the concept of owing is this. It's, it's withholding something that rightfully belongs to someone. So if you withhold tax, or you don't give honor, or you don't give respect, or you don't give your voice, or whatever those things are you owe the government, you owe it to them, and you're maintaining a position of owing something. You are withholding something that belongs to another. So the colonnade is like, actually, everybody. So the language here is double, and it's uh, emphatic, that owe no one nothing. Stay clean. Don't, don't have any obligations to anybody except for one thing. And it's still in the O world. It is to love each other. You would owe love. Interesting piece here. You love each other. And look at verse 8. Love each other. And then the second half of verse 8, it says, For the one who loves another, or literally the word other, has fulfilled the law. Let me verse, explain verses um, 9 and 10, and we'll come back and finish on 8, because eight is, 8 is the lynch. 8 is where he's going. 8 is what he wants you to think about, the life that you're to be engaged in. He says, interestingly enough, at the end of verse 8, whoever loves has fulfilled the law. This is the last time that Paul refers to the law in the book of Romans. And why is he referring to the law? If you're new to the book of Romans, Rome is way the heck away away from Jerusalem and most of the churches. And Paul hasn't been there. And the people in Rome have been largely affected by Christians who started church and then a bunch of Christians got kicked out of or the Jewish people got kicked out of Rome. But in the church of Rome is this lingering question, like what is the rightful connection of the New Testament message of Jesus to the Old Testament? Like, and what do you do with all this Jewishness? Because doesn't Jewishness come from God? So is this question time and time again that Paul is lapping back in here? And this is Paul's final installment in a very brief way saying, I want you to see how consistent New Covenant, New Testament reign of Jesus is with the Old Testament. So he says, those who love another have fulfilled the law, verse 9. And he lists off here um, the second half of the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So he lists off the second half of the Ten Commandments. And then he does this really helpful thing. And we should really pay attention to this because the Pharisees didn't. And they got slapped all over the place by Jesus, lovingly but truthfully. They didn't pay attention to drop-down menus. What do I mean by drop-down menus? Prioritizations. God didn't come in the Old Testament and just give a ton of instructions a ton of, of, of commands. He actually gave them an order. Love the Lord, love your neighbor as yourself, and from those two things, everything flows. Actually, love God is the first, love your neighbor is the second, and out of that, everything else flows. 
So he's breaking this out and saying, look how consistent this is with what's always been told. Love your neighbors yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. The New Testament is in the same harmony with the Old Testament on this. It's the call to love one another. Finishing up here, we have this. We are those who love those around us with the regularity and sincerity of debtors to love. To love, not placate or be nice to them, but to love them. To know what love is and by the power of the Spirit to proactively love them in a way where they can know and expect it from us. Why does it say, owe no one anything but to love? Because we are to love in a way so consistently that people believe we owe it to them. Committed relationships, propensity of love, staying in places where you can build those relationships and you are a debtor of love to keep loving and loving and loving and the people around you so see love out of you that it's seen as a debt of love to you. So we don't ignore the government, we embrace it in its rightful spot, we engage it, we do what is owed to them, and then we release that as a worship piece. And then we come into our main thing, which is to love our neighbors as ourselves. So usually in the New Testament, when it talks about loving one another, it's talking about Christians, loving one another. But this passage says three things. It says, love one another, in case you're a Greek geek, alelon. Then it says, love others, hetros. That's a different term. And then finally, love your neighbors in verse 10. So this call here is to love every soul around you. People in the church, love your neighbors, love your coworkers, love those people that vote different than you. Like love them and love them with an indebtedness of love. A love that is not just sporadically like toss a little love bouquet here and there, but really to enter in those relationships and keep it coming and keep it coming and keep it coming. What do I see my life as? My life belongs to Jesus Christ. And I'm here to live a life, a life of indebted love to the people around me. All right, so three things we see out of Romans 10, verses 6 to 10, and I know some of it's kind of heavy, but may the Lord help you where you see it resonating against your heart. Uh, may the Lord help you trust him in that and pray it through and think it through and commit your ways to him and to live in the design that he's given us, which is good and which is a grace to the world around us that needs it so badly as the lights go out. Father, please be with us and give us help and wisdom. Uh, be with us now as, as, as Wes leads us through prayerful reflection in this passage.